There are more hedge fund managers in the US than there are Taco Bell managers. Welcome to Kick the Dogma in our inaugural interview-style podcast with Robin Wigglesworth, global finance correspondent for the Financial Times and author of Trillions, How a Band of Wall Street Renegades Invented the Index Fund and Changed Finance Forever. And there's nothing hyperbolic about that subtitle. If you're happily enjoying that Spider S&P 600 small cap ETF with a 15 basis point expense ratio in your portfolio this morning, just know it took 70 years to go from Harry Markowitz's first swing at a mean variance optimization model through today. And that's a perfect introduction to my apology for nerding out on academia in the second half of the discussion that follows. But academia is where all these tools started. So just in case you were lucky enough to not have been indoctrinated in modern financial theory or went to business school so long ago you've forgotten what some of the terms mean, here's a synopsis. MPT refers to modern portfolio theory, the Markowitz model for optimizing return for volatility or volatility for return. Markowitz left the definition of expected return blank, and Bill Sharp came through with an answer called the Capital Asset Pricing Model, or CAPM. Sharp also kind of consolidated the Markowitz definitions for risk and correlations into something called beta. But all roads lead to Eugene Fama's Efficient Market Hypothesis, or EMH. And EMH set the groundwork for the index fund, and that's what I nerd out on the most. On to the discussion. First, the topics that got covered. I learned a lot about Robin generally and his home country of Norway specifically. The Norway discussion was not a frivolous digression. I think an enormous amount can be learned from seeing how this country of five and a half million people has managed its economy and resources. There's nothing random about what I intend to do with this podcast. And though I'm not making recommendations, I hope a year or two from now, looking back, I'll have left a trail of breadcrumbs leading somewhere interesting. We talked about price realization in an increasingly passive investing universe, corporate governance, the data behind passive versus active, and what do those terms mean anyway, and then efficient market hypothesis and the Cleese principle, with my apologies to Mr. Cleese for co-opting his 90-10 rule. Well, I didn't get to, at least not in depth. Factors versus anomalies, the rise of dimensional fund advisors, will it get easier for active managers to beat their benchmark as more money goes passive? The value of owning an index like MSCI, ETFs structured with options, and an easy hour by itself could have been bond ETFs. I still feel like Fed Chairman Powell's decision to buy corporate bond ETFs in March of 2020 instead of buying individual bonds was among a handful of the most interesting moments in finance this young century. And there was so much more we didn't get to. Fortunately, it's all in the book and it's a must read. The characters in the story aren't quite as eccentric as what you might find in a Michael Lewis book. They're more like the Lewis and Clark or the Wright brothers of the financial world. Big personalities, even bigger intellects, and an enormous amount of vision and confidence. And lastly, if I never get another interview, I'll blame Robin, as following him as a guest might seem as attractive as following Hendrix at Monterey. He's that good. And now, here's my discussion with Robin Wigglesworth. The first post of yours I ever saw on on social media somewhere was you making a joke about actually being Norwegian despite having what you call the Harry Potter sounding name. And yeah. I cracked up because I was already a fan of the Netflix series Norseman, which mm. if, if you could guess, if you don't know, and I'll apologize for offending your native ears, but the, the actors have names like, you know, Nils Jürgen Karlstad, you know, and like Robin Wigglesworth, you know. So <laughs> yes. 
what is your you know family background? At some point, did someone transplant from the UK to Norway, or are you descended from Vikings? Uh, a little bit Viking, but you know, fairly sort of a bit of a mongrel, a bit of everything. Um, so my mother, who's Norwegian and from Oslo, uh, she, like many Norwegians, wanted to study abroad. And she wanted to be an architect like my grandparents. And uh, she went to study in Scotland, where lots of Norwegians study. It's, it's a stunningly large Norwegian population in Scotland, Edinburgh and Glasgow, but especially Edinburgh. And there she met my father, who was also studying architecture. And the plan was to try five years in Norway and then five years in the UK. And they just ended up staying in Norway uh, because despite its faults and all countries have them, Norway is a very easy place to live where, you know, everybody likes to complain about taxes or, or the country being boring. Um, I tend to think these days that being boring is kind of Norway's superpower. You know, if, if Norway was a, a superhero, that'd be our superpower. Uh, I appreciate boringness a lot more than I did when I was younger. But um, yeah, so I grew up in Oslo with a very English sounding last name. There were only three Wigglesworths in all of Norway. It's my father, my brother and I. And um, I, I felt very English growing up in Norway because it's such a homogenous country. It certainly was when I grew up. Um, and I was kind of seen as, as a foreigner because of the weird last name. It was only when I actually moved to the UK to study, to do my bachelor's and my master's, that I realized I wasn't actually English at all. That yeah. superficially, there are lots of similarities, but Norway is weird enough and idiosyncratic enough that I've just stopped saying I'm English. Now I just say I'm a Norwegian with a very weird name. The good thing is that Norway is a lot less some homogenous these days. So having a weird last name is certainly uh, more common these days in Norway than it used to be 30, 40 years ago. Well, it's... Um... So you answered my next question about whether you you yourself studied over there, which I anticipated. But you also mm. talked about uh, the quality of life. Um, and I agree with you about being boring, but I, it's better than that. So I actually was reading another book unrelated to this called uh, Happiness, Lessons from a New Science. And the authors quote a world values survey where they ask people uh, whether or not you think you can trust people. Yeah. And the highest percentage response in the world was Norway at 64%, which is a whole other subject that 36%, you know, in the, in the most favorable results say, I know you can't trust anybody, but still they, they, there was the highest score. And then they also did one of those other studies where they drop wallets with IDs in them and count how many returned and Scandinavia generally, again, scored the highest. Is, is that resonate with your, your experience and kind of thoughts about the country? Yes, very much so. Uh, there's even a bit of competitiveness about that. I remember Norwegians were scandalized by the fact that Danes, I think, were a little bit better at returning those wallets. Uh, I mean, just the other day, I misplaced my wallet and I was entirely relaxed about it because I assumed that if I had dropped it outside, somebody would find it and return it to me. Wow. Uh, that's the, sort of the underlying assumption. Now, in practice, there are all, they're all sort of um, subtleties and nuances to this. But broadly speaking, yes, Scandinavia and the Nordic region is a very high trust um, region, both, you know, how much we trust our fellow citizens and our neighbours, but also how much we trust in government. So I always joke that when COVID came and when the governments were mandated uh, distance, first of all, I said, well, obviously, you know, 
Scandinavians keep our distance anyway, that we always <laughs> listen to our governments. I mean, broadly speaking, there's an assumption, even if you disagree, you will essentially do what you're told. Okay. Uh, and there are areas where that, uh, that phrase a little bit, but broadly speaking, it is one of the nicer things about living here. I mean, I lived in, uh, for a long time in the UK and the US as well, and in the Middle East, and just simply how many phone calls I get with scams in Norway is maybe, I think I've had one, my entire life here yeah. and in new york it was kind of a monthly thing at least right that was a good month so i just feel you know sadly uh distrust feeds on itself it's a it becomes a it's a vicious cycle and trust thankfully also becomes a, a positive cycle yeah. um so that might not last forever but i'm very thankful that it's the case now yeah and it sounds like a great place to raise kids and, and you talk about government and now we're going to get more into the topic that's in the book. Um, I'm also fascinated by the Norway pension funds. And yeah. no one's asked you about it. I haven't heard all of your interviews, but there's a correlation there uh, between the academic theory in the book, at least in one paper back in 2011 that praised the, the government pension fund global uh, for its performance. And, and just so I understand, and you've sounds like you've lived in New York, you know, Americans are uh, at best provincial and at worst completely ignorant of everything outside of you know our country but um that fund that's synonymous with the sovereign wealth fund which right which is the term i hear a lot and that yeah, so that in, that invests the oil royalties essentially yes so norway found oil what 40 years ago or something 40 50 years ago and after a while they realized that the revenues from this would be quite significant and spending it all immediately, though we did spend a lot on, on infrastructure and, and uh, education, things like that, they realized that, you know, it might push up the value of the krona and cause what economists call the Dutch disease, that it makes all other exports uncompetitive. So the idea was to set up a mechanism where we essentially only spent the, on average, the 4% expected returns, nominal returns of the fund a year. And then some years when there's a big downturn, you can spend six, 7%. Other years, you might only spend 2% of the income from the fund. So the idea that the fund would start growing quite significantly. But a combination of, of exports being pretty healthy, oil prices being a lot higher than people expect, and there's sort of a, a limit to how much money you can spend in what has been a fairly fast-growing economy anyway, has meant that's grown to staggering proportions. as well over a trillion dollars now. It's, it's the biggest in the world by far now. Now, some of the Middle East funds I used to cover don't actually disclose the total size, but I think it's widely acknowledged now. And you can literally go onto the website nbim.com and see the value of the fund going up and down on any given day. Uh, because Norway is a very high transparency country. And mm -hmm. because this was very much seen as the, the, the people's saving pot, there right. for future generations. So it's not called the Sovereign Wealth Fund. It's called the Overseas Pension Fund. Okay. Uh, you can see all the reports. Everything's printed in both Norwegian and English. Every single holding is there uh, annually and quarterly. Well, that feeds it. That feeds into your trust comment earlier about trust in government, yeah. transparency, and and how uh, I believe the Ministry of Finance is involved. But what is the the framework for allocating that capital? Does it and and does the modern financial theory, the elements of it that you write about in your book and the history leading up to index funds, does that play a part in how they allocate capital around the world? Are they picking stocks in Germany? Are they allocating to indexes? 
Are they doing more of the Yale endowment thing? How, what, what can you say about how that money is invested? Essentially, it's like a mammoth 60-40 fund, okay. essentially. Uh, so part of this is happenstance. Uh, it was housed in the central bank. So it's called Norges Bank Investment Management, Norges Bank in the central bank, purely because in Norway, there was no government agency that had the competence to deal with this. Right. And partially because it was run by the Norwegian central bank, it was all fixed income to begin with. And it was all pretty because they essentially it was de facto passive because they didn't have the competence to sit there and pick stuff. So they basically bought a little bit of everything. Okay. So over the years, they shifted to 40 percent equities, then 6 percent equities, 70 percent equities as they kind of fine tune and finesse the model. And there is an active component, both in that the Norgus Bank investment management both allocates money to external managers and manages some money in house. Now, the in-house management is a little bit controversial because some people think it's complete waste and why are we paying people to do this? It's an overwhelmingly passive fund anyway. And in this kind of time frame that it operates on, you know, first of all, the data is pretty grim. But also, secondly, it's so small, the active component, that doesn't really matter. Right. Why even keep it there? Right. The central bank has argued that, well, it's good to have some basic competency internally as well. And if you just run in a giant index fund, then then we might lose that over time. But that's been the debate. And then, obviously, given this massive pot of money, it's always tempting, especially more recently, to maybe start saying, well, how about we push money certain, into certain areas? Because it has to have buy-in from the populace. There's generally been uh, primarily uh, an ethics council that sits there and will ban specific... Um, companies or industries that are considered anathematous of Norwegian society. So the most high-profile examples of those were anything involved with nuclear weapons. So Lockheed Martin, or any sort of arms manufacturer, any sort of a nuclear component is excluded from the fund in any index it uses. Fascinating. And then over the years, they've tweaked it a little bit that some that use very sort of extractive, bad practices in certain countries or, for example, Walmart, because of its anti-union policies. But broadly speaking, it is a giant, massive, passive uh, 60-40 fund, essentially, with increasingly some money in real estate. But because of you know, the, the inefficiency, that's just a very peculiar market. It takes time to allocate money to that sufficient to make it a big component. So I think the plan is to take that up to 5 or 10%, but it's slow going. It'll get there eventually. Are they doing that real estate piece direct then? Is that why it's slow going? They're... Uh, both direct and co-investments and through funds. Okay. So okay. primarily, I think it's been through as partners with well-established uh, real estate firms where somebody else does the management because they have some internal capacity to do that, but they can't manage properties around the entire world because of the size of the fund. This would eventually become one of the biggest property empires in the world. So right. a lot of that is kind of outsourced. Okay. Uh, there's always been a debate about doing, yes, more Yale-like or endowment model, uh, private equity, other private capital uh, arms. Uh, realistically, I don't think it's ever going to happen, either you know through a Blackstone or a Brookfield or, or you know doing it in-house because of the fees involved. Right. I just politically impossible in a fund like that. Yeah. I mean, in Norway, people get angry if anybody makes more money than the prime minister <laughs> who's on kind of a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. So when there's inevitably 
a disclosure in the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund saying fund manager A was paid an egregious amount of money, that's just going to be a political crisis. So uh, that's probably never going to happen. Okay. And then the other fund, the Government Pension Fund of Norway, holds investments in um, what I refer to as the publicly traded state-owned funds, which is, you know, they're, they're state-owned. You can see it in the ownership, but they're publicly traded. I, I can uh, buy them. What, what is the governance like for those holdings? Does the government have board seats on those companies? How much does it allow it to do what it wants to do versus um, infusing some opinion? Uh, waxes and wanes from error to error and government to government. Uh, generally speaking, yes. So there are various sort of state-owned or state-controlled companies that have been listed publicly. Uh, the biggest example, the biggest company in Norway by far, and one of the biggest in, in the Nordic region, is what was known as Statoil right. and is now known as Equinor. So that's the national oil company. Uh, most of the oil revenues actually comes from the fact that there's a 50% surcharge on, on oil income. You pay basically an extra oil tax. So there are a lot of big other oil majors in, the, in Norway because they wanted that both to ensure a bit of competition. The government champions have always been exposed to some sort of competition. Uh, but Norway is very much sort of a mixed economy where they want the discipline of markets, but still that the state has a big role to play in many areas. So quite often, Statoil has been allowed to kind of do whatever a privately run, privately owned company would do for even sometimes stuff that was controversial domestically, such as investing in oil sands in Canada. That was quite a hot potato in domestically for a period and is increasing now because, frankly, that ended up being a bad investment. Um, they have board representation. Uh, they are only, you know, the biggest shareholder, but not a majority in all cases. But broadly speaking, it's a very brave CEO uh, or chairman that ignores the wishes of the Norwegian government. Okay. That said, the Norwegian governments have, on both centre-left and centre-right, broadly speaking, been very responsible with how they use this. Like, everybody has their politicals of beliefs, but broadly speaking, they know that in the long run, it's better to let these companies run as sort of quasi-halfway houses between purely private and purely state companies. Okay. Um, that might always not always stay that way, of course, especially these days. So I, I don't know all the oil majors, but most of them, ENI is there, Exxon, I suspect, BP was definitely involved. Um, so anybody with a big offshore component okay. will have been active. And I, I went down this path because of what's going on in Chile with their new president, Boric, which I find fascinating to watch uh, because, although I haven't seen it described exactly in these terms, but he has ambitious a social agenda on one side and possibly a way to pay for it on the other, which is to replicate what Norway has done forever, which is to capture some royalties because they do have a mining company. There it's mining, right? It's lithium and copper. They do have a state mining company, but also the big three are the biggest miners, you know, BHP, uh, Glencore and Albemarle. And I, I don't know what the arrangement is there, but my sense is he's he's sitting there going, look, this is the the oil of the alternative energy age, lithium. And, and copper right behind it, um, maybe we can start capturing. I have no idea what's going to happen 
uh, how that's going to be received, but capture some royalties. And that could be, I mean, you, you, your country's in great shape. I mean, you, you, the citizens, 5.3 million people with a trillion dollar sovereign wealth fund. I, I don't know how he doesn't look at that and go, um, I don't have to get all the way there, but boy, just a little bit. Um, have you seen, have you watched that at all? And, and do you have any view on what Borch might do, what he's going to try to do? No, only that, that he is an interesting character. I haven't been following it closely enough. I know a little bit about the Chilean economy, it's the background, but, uh, I mean, the problem with getting, you know, a trillion dollar sovereign wealth fund and, you know, the UK has talked about this as well. Australia's started, so other countries have tried to replicate it. It's kind of, you kind of need a time machine. Yeah. And you also need very unique uh institutions uh you know there's there's a you know there aren't that many countries that have found oil and become democracies most of the countries and you know look at the countries that have found oil quite often it's ended up being more of a curse than a blessing right and i think that goes for most natural resources chile is pretty unique in latin america though and the legacy of everything from its pension plan for reforms to you know some of the economic liberalization it would be interesting because it's you know geographically quite similar to Norway, and it's a very long country with lots of inlets and fjords. Right. Uh, they also have a big salmon farming industry as well, which we hope we can live off when the oil and gas runs out. <laughs> I, for- I forgot about that. Um, well, we'll watch that. And and my last question about Norway, my my interest in Norway started uh, before learning about you or the Netflix series Norseman. It was doing research on Volkswagen as a competitor in the EV space. Um, can you share a little bit about the state of uh, electric vehicles in Norway? And and if you don't mind talking a little bit about electricity, I would have, I almost assumed, ah, their electricity is free. They have all that hydro, but they're just in, in searching on the internet. There does seem to be some volatility in what you pay. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating, actually. I have to admit, I'm not an expert on the Norwegian energy policy, but it's been a, it's something I, I know a little bit about. So broadly speaking, yes, Norway did spend quite a lot of that oil money building hydroelectric dams and, and sort of hydropower from lots of um, uh, waterfalls we have around the country. Basically, Norway is one big mountain range, essentially. And that generates a lot of power. And quite often, more power that we can use, because obviously it's hard to store this stuff. Right. Uh, so we then export it to uh, the rest of Scandinavia. The Nordic region has sort of a pooled energy market and increasingly also to Germany and the UK. The problem is that our energy generation and the price of it is very dependent on waterfall, like how much it has rained in a year. Mm. So, for example, yes, energy prices have spiked quite dramatically here in Norway, not because we're dependent on Russian gas or anything like that, but purely because it was a very poor year of rain at a time when it's also very profitable to sell energy abroad. Uh, so that's been politically controversial. But broadly speaking, I think it depends on the year, but it's anything from 90 to over 100% of all of Norway's energy, electric, electrical energy is generated by hydro. And yeah, I mean, how that develops in the future, there's like some of this stuff needs probably a bit of modernization. Um, but it's been a huge success. An electric vehicle penetration is very high. Yeah, that's somewhat separate. I mean, I don't think you can entirely disentangle it from the fact that we have reasonably, uh, not cheap, but not expensive, free kind of our hydroelectric uh, power. But it's that's more to do with what I'd say that is an, an innate 
uh, greenness of Norwegians and Scandinavians in general. We right. really appreciate nature. Right. It wasn't that long ago we were all living on farms. People used to call Norway the Albania of the north. You know, this right. was 100 years ago. Um, we were all sort of living out in the in the country. Uh, so there's always been a care for the environment. That has clashed a little bit awkwardly that we are also massively dependent, have grown incredibly wealthy on oil and gas. Right. Uh, so that's always been a little bit awkward. So the way that Norway has kind of done it, and some people think it's hypocritical of Norway exporting dirty hydrocarbons whilst trying to green itself and pretending we're so kind of fine and dandy. I kind of think it's like, why wouldn't you do it? I mean, if we can afford to do this, we should do this. Yes, we sell oil. And there are some Norwegians that think we should just stop producing oil altogether. I think that could be in the short run quite dangerous in the long run, probably not help. Um, but essentially, yes, because of the wealth that the state controls, there have been various incentives put in place to encourage and nurture electric car ownership, everything from building out the charging infrastructure that you need. So now if you go to most big um, towns and petrol stations, you'll see electrical charging stations there. And there are various other incentives that vary sometimes from state to state, but across the entire country, we encourage EV adoption. And over half of all new cars sold in Norway, I think for two or three years, have been electric now. Okay. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with future governments, whether these incentives remain, whether they'll get phased out as EV maybe becomes more economic anyway, uh, and how that remains. But broadly speaking, I think a lot of it's a mix of incentives and the fact that quite a lot of Norwegians can afford an expensive Tesla, whilst, you know, not a lot of other countries, uh, you know, it, it's hard to do that on, on sort of a, the medium wage. In, in Norway, that's a little bit more achievable. Okay. And um, you, you, a little bit of a non sequitur, but you talked about taxes earlier. One of the many, many things I learned in this book, this is a topic I thought I knew a bit about. I've been in the industry, you know, broadly about for 30 years, is the, the fact that ETFs are tax advantaged in the US, but not globally. And Dimensional Fund Advisors, DFA, they, they were in the news last year for actually converting some of their mutual funds, but not all. What, what's the calculus for a mutual fund to make that decision? And why don't they all go that route? I know because you can have active funds as well, but we'll talk more about what the, yeah. the DFA animal is and is not. But what, what, do you, what do you see going on that front, uh, at least in the US, those mutual fund conversions? No, I think that's been really interesting. And, and probably as eye-catching, at least to me, was the fact when Capital Group, that manages the American funds, uh, set up an active ETF arm. Um, so there are these tax advantages and how and when you pay it, essentially. So with an ETF, because of the unique structure of it, there's a lot of sort of in-kind uh, creations and redemptions. Uh, you don't actually liable to capital gains until you actually sell the ETF itself um, as an investor. And that has an advantage, uh, certainly in the US, but that isn't the case globally. And ETFs aren't as widely adopted outside the US as they are in the US, but it's still exploding. And I think really it boils down to, one thing is just distribution. That in a world where, you know, more and more people, certainly younger generations are buying more funds in on, on smartphone apps and buying them and selling the stocks, ETFs, 
distribution wise just work a lot better um so so that there are advantages there and then there are frankly some other advantages to the structure of etfs over maybe classic in the us 40 act mutual funds so i'm not a, a legal expert in this but i've dug into it a little bit and and also the structure and the weaknesses of both of them and one of the things i suspect that even i didn't appreciate in the beginning of covering the index fund world the investment world was that i think of etfs purely as a passive investment fund index funds 2.0 tradable index funds because that was its genesis they were born as an index tracker the first etf or kind of the first etf in the us was spider which tracked the s&p 500 and that's where most of the money is today right but i think increasing quite a lot of investment firms are seeing the etf as a superior investment wrapper a legal structure that actually has a lot of just good sound structural arguments in favor of it over the mutual fund and look i i the mutual fund is not going to die out anytime soon there's still 40 50 trillion dollars worth of money in mutual funds around the world not all 40 act funds of course uh, but i suspect that actually if you see the between conversions and where new fund strategies are being set up the etf could in 20 years time we'll see that actually it has become ascendant and has surpassed its grandfather the mutual fund that actually etfs won't be seen as this weird index tracking thing it's just going to be the way fund structures are and all funds trade on exchange that way right so if you're starting a new fund you're going to start an etf whereas and as as you know i sit on the board of of several actively managed funds you just look at the cost and the time and and the the you know how how much of the benefits actually inure to the investor, which is great, versus me the manager. And I say ah, you know I'm I'm fine. No one's no one's complaining right now. So yeah, no exactly because there's inertia, right? Once the money's in there, as soon as you convert, as soon as there's an action, then there might be outflows or, or whatever. So I think right. there are, there's a fine tuned argument for what you whether you convert or what you do with the new strategies because like sometimes new strategies don't make sense. in an etf necessarily uh but it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out because i mean kathy wood and and arc invest is not having a great few weeks or months really but again she showed that you could no problem wrap active strategies in an etf format no problem really right uh there are issues around it i think in capital uh or capacity constraint strategies that, uh, you know, it's harder to gate a mutual fund. I mean, a mutual fund, you can just say, we are not taking any more investments. Right. And quite a lot of big, high-profile funds are gated. Uh, with an ETF, I'm not even sure what the legal workaround would be in that case. It's so interesting you, you, you state that because I've had conversations with Wes Gray of Alpha Architect. Yeah. About, and that was a question I was going to ask him the next time because, yes, in a in a 40-act mutual fund, you can have hard closes, you can have soft closes where you it's just open to existing investors or it's closed to everybody. And I'm sitting there thinking, how do you do that with an ETF? And I don't know that it exists right now. And um, uh, that someone will someone will find out because they're they're getting uh, getting big. Um, yeah, I hope they will. I mean, there's been talk of this. I mean, ETFs. Financial regulation, look, is a really boring, difficult job where everybody thinks you're an idiot all the time. So I have a lot of sympathy for regulators. But I do think that essentially the regulatory architecture in the US and Europe and most countries really hasn't kept up in pace with 
financial innovation. It's like we have rules of the road. I mean, when I talk about the 40 Act, that is literally the 1940 Act. Right. Obviously been updated many times since. Right. But maybe this is 2022. We need a more holistic, overarching structure rather than quite often various of exemptions to existing regulations. Uh, Europe has USITs, of course, but there are many things I think that probably could be streamlined and done better for yeah. you know, both yeah. to protect individual investors, to encourage innovation at the same time, and, uh, and make sure that we have safe and sound capital markets, as, as uh, the various trade bodies always say. Right. And, and, and last question before we dive more into the book, and uh, not to uh, pry at all, but um, Markowitz famously in an interview with Jason Zweig disclosed that he didn't use modern portfolio theory in his own portfolio. He just went 50-50 stocks and bonds. And um, that's a pretty old interview. And I don't even know what was available to him. But how, how do you, Robin, uh, invest and how has your job at Financial Times, and we'll talk more about that, and your, res your extra research for this book influenced in any way the way uh, you invest personally? So um, it's an easy question uh, taken very quickly in that like I am levered long Norwegian and UK property, essentially. Mm. Uh, I am, I've got two mortgages and between kids and servicing those two mortgages uh, in my old place in London and here in Norway, there's not a lot of extra money in saving in that I set aside some of my salary in a salary of sacrifice scheme to a F FT's defined contribution um, plan and they double match that and that gets put into, I don't, I, I know the insurance company that runs it, but I've actually deliberately avoided scratching below the hood a little bit because for me it's i don't want to sit there and see oh my god they're doing all these horrible things and be tempted to fiddle around or even hate you know these are quite often asset managers that i cover right but broadly right. speaking uh the one thing i have learned in covering finance i mean for only 15 years now but you know almost every person i speak to is wildly smarter than i am and many of them have dedicated their lives to beating markets and it's really inculcated a, a sense of me and how hard it really is to do in the long run. So I'm not a passive jihadist, as I put it. I don't think markets are efficient. I think alpha does exist. But I think it's generally rarer than people appreciate. And it's quite often expensive. Uh, and smart people do dumb things all the time. Yep. So I try to sort of, um, I would always try to uh, match for stupidity or plan for stupidity and go sort of broad, boring, plain vanilla uh, index funds and just okay. keeping an eye on international diversification because, frankly, I see people in Norway that say they're, they're invested in an index fund in Norway, for example, and it literally checks the also stock exchange, <laughs> right. which is essentially the oil pricing drag right. with some equity risk premium right. baked in. So I think people need to also keep an eye on, you know, an index fund doesn't always mean good or cheap even. Uh, you need to kind of know what you're buying. Yeah, that, that'd be a whole other hour of interest to me is <laughs> how the rest of the world, how this book and the academic theory and the learnings and the application in the United States transfers or not to the rest of the world. I'm a, I'm a Norwegian citizen. I'm a German citizen. You know, I'm Swedish. Yeah. You know, I, I read the book. I know now what do I do? You know, um, yeah. but we'll talk more about that. I just want to get to the book a little bit and not too much. So uh, there, there's so much in here uh, that uh, you, you couldn't 
it applies to everybody because after the history, you could spend hours on the last 60 pages, which is to me, yeah. this is the implication that applies to everybody. You may not know uh, modern portfolio theory versus capital asset pricing model, but this stuff is, might end up impacting you. But the first story that you open with, uh, the, the Buffett bet, is such an incredible story. I vaguely remember it happening, um, but yeah. you had so many details that I wasn't aware of. And one of was that in 2006, Buffett had actually proposed 10 hedge funds himself before yeah. protégés Ted Seides committed the cardinal sin of over-diversification, you know, funds of funds of <laughs> funds and fees on fees. But what, does anyone know anything about those 10 funds that Buffett picked? And was there any way for Ted to have won this bet or did he just actively select out of good performance? No, so it's a really interesting, and because like sometimes you, you can you can lose a bet, but you were right still. And sometimes right. you can win a bet through just plain luck. Uh, I think like Buffett, I would have put good money on Buffett winning that bet in any time year ten year time period. But it's not as convincing, and I try to get that nuance through as well. So Buffett didn't name the ten of hedge funds. He just as a, a rhetorical tool in one of his meetings said, I will bet anybody that the S&P 500 will beat any sort of 10 hedge funds you choose to, to pick. Uh, and and they, the Ted Sides and, and protege partners where he worked at the time chose five fund of funds to essentially diversify all the hedge funds. You get kind of more pure hedge fund exposure. And, and Buffett said that the, the big mistake there was fees on fees. So you right. pay both the fund of funds and the individual hedge funds. And I suspect that I, I haven't seen any clear number calculations on how much the, the fees stripped out. Uh, I think only Buffett, who knew the underlying funds and, and the project, could give us that. Uh, and I haven't seen that made public yet. But I suspect it was just, even without the fees, even if you'd equalized the fees, uh, Buffett would still have won. Okay. And I think that's partially because... The, the fees is a real issue. Like less than half of fund managers beat the index in the long run, uh, in, in, in any given year after fees. But if you take away fees or equalize them, or if they charge a lot less, then actually the numbers still don't look favorable for active, but they look less horrific. Right. Um, quite a lot of active funds kind of start every game down, goal down because of their fees. And you can see the funds that typically do tend to outperform the longer run are on the cheaper decile, like a, a capital group is generally re pretty cheap. Same with them with some of the T row funds and so on. Um, look, I, I think certainly in the decades since the bet was over, I think also cheap beta basically the SP 500 would have done has done incredibly well right because it's been a really good period for large cap u.s equities but it's been a uniquely good period for u.s large cap equities or almost uniquely you have to go back to even the dot-com uh i wasn't quite so narrow uh maybe the go-go era in the 1960s yeah so would buffett always have won that boat over any 10-year rolling period no no yeah, certainly not. But I do think that the real issue is that hedge funds certainly, and quite a lot of mutual funds are guilty of this, are not disciplined enough on capacity. And hedge funds, the returns they got in the 80s and 90s, that was when it was a cottage industry with max a couple of hundred billion dollars. Right. There is now four or more than four trillion dollars worth in hedge funds. Right. There are more hedge fund managers in the US than there are Taco Bell managers. <laughs> so the idea that they can all do well in the long run 
after their quite often very expensive fees, I think is the fallacy that Buffett revealed quite niftily. I'll tell you a, a personal story. When I was still in San Francisco, I got invited to these uh, events by a hedge fund manager. They were called idea lunches. And the premise was you get uh, nine or 10 smart hedge fund managers in a room. And over lunch, you're responsible for pitching an idea to the crowd. You get asked questions, you know, and uh, maybe someone gets something out of it. And then a year or two later, uh, the market blows up. You look at performance and you start pulling the 13 Fs and you realize everyone owns the same stocks. It was was insanity, you know, what you think is diversification turned out to be not quite so. No, I mean, this crowding in everything, right? No, it's it's just hard. And this is like, I think sometimes, maybe even I'm guilty of this. I kind of, it's a bit me being mean or kind of actively kind of, kind of was grave dancing on, on the fate of active managers. And I, I don't want to do that because frankly, like I will say, there's some of the smartest people I've met in my life worked in investment management. I think it's a far more honest and rigorous and intellectually stimulating job than, you know, investment banking and kind of working right. through spreadsheets all the time. But it's just really hard. And frankly, one thing I interviewed Ted Sides after the fact, uh, after about for that chapter, the first chapter of the book. And I think the one other thing that really made an impression with him, because he's a very thoughtful, interesting guy, is that the problem is even if you do well, it's always tempting to think that you do well because you're a genius and right. everything that you grew up is because of somebody else's fault. But in investment management, it's hard to really know for certain whether that was your skill or just luck. So Buffett himself has used the analogy of like, if you get thousands of people flipping coins, some of them are going to come out with heads 10 times in a row. And it doesn't mean they're good coin flippers. Right. It's just the way things shake out. Even right. Buffett has talked about what if he or his ma- his, pro- his mentor, Ben Graham, hadn't invested, I think it's in Getco, very early on. And because of that generated incredible returns and therefore had the faith of investors. And then it starts snowballing. And they were good. Clearly, they're incredibly sure, good at sure. what they do. But what if our generation's Ben Graham or Warren Buffett just took an early bet on something and blew up well before it paid off? Right. Yeah. You don't raise assets. You don't get it. You don't get a second chance. And no one, yeah. no one ever hears of you. Yeah. You're yeah. basically the portfolio manager that managed like $10 million in some forgotten sleeve at Tiro, and you're never going to get another job after that. So right. it's just it's, it's it's a really hard job, I think. Yeah. And yeah. I think one thing that is that people appreciate more that you don't have to be an efficient market zealot to think it do, to do well. Like I, I, the book is a lot about the 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 building blocks, the intellectual building blocks behind uh, and foundation stones behind indexing. Uh, which is efficient markets, was a big thing in the 60s. And a lot of the early pioneers were efficient market zealots and had Gene Farmer as their, as their mentor. But you know, more recent studies have shown that the skew, the distribution of returns in equity markets is even more wildly lopsided than we thought. That over half of all stocks have ever existed in the United States and globally, actually, that's been replicated globally, have returned less than T-bills. Either you would have lost all your money, you would have made more money investing in T-bills. And I think it's around 5% of all stocks account for all wealth generation over the past century. It's Five crazy. stocks. It's crazy. So if you don't get all of them or one of them are wrong or something like that, or you miss out, then you can't. you're going to underperform. Right. So that kind of skew makes it really difficult to be an active manager. Certainly an efficient market or fairly to use that word, efficient markets like large cap U.S. equities. That's, yeah, that's a tough gig. It is, and 
perfect timing to talk about Fama and EMH. Uh, you and I are in agreement about, you know, markets aren't efficient. That was probably just a bad word choice. Yeah. I've joked that. So I graduated business school, graduate school in 1993. And I think if you asked 100 of us or older, what efficient market hypothesis said, would it stand, they would say, uh, <clears throat> all news and possible information is known by everybody at all the same time, and you can't add value through active management. Now, Paul Samuel has, has said there's nothing in EMH that prohibits a, a talented investor from, from adding value. Uh, subsequently, uh, Fama has said, I, I, that's not what I said. So as you said uh, somewhere, that uh, the box quote, you know, uh, all models are wrong, but um, they're yeah. useful. And so directionally, however they got there, they're, they're right. It's really hard to actively be a benchmark. And more frustratingly for the individual investor or the wealth manager, it's just as hard to figure out who those people are going to be in advance. And as you already brought up, if they are that good and it was that obvious, they're probably closed. Forget about the fees they charge. They're probably not taking your your money. But so I, I, I rambled my kind of interpretation of the data. What is the, the, the great takeaway from the academic takeaway from FAMA? What is EMH? say and what is it doesn't say how have we misinterpreted it if at all no i, I think i mean i think you summed it up really well actually uh i mean it's like all big controversial theories it what people think about it tends to re reflect their own biases uh i think even like even if you went through everything that gene farmer said about it over the years you know it's probably kind of wax wane as his and other people's understanding of something waxes and wanes like it's not like physics right there are no immutable laws of finance in my view right uh i think efficient was arguably the wrong word use for what it really describes and i think farmer sometimes gets unfairly um criticized because people say well you know the market's just dropped 20 percent. does that mean the market's inefficient or something and it's like well actually look literally gene farmer's phd thesis was on how markets moved, you know, kind They're of not normal returns are not normal, non normal yeah. returns. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So, so he, he, he's been aware of this and done, done seminal work on this in the early sixties. Um, but I think the issue with like, efficient markets, it's a good, like a mental model for how markets or shorthand for how markets kind of work. And they keep baking in all information that's good and bad information. Uh, the weaknesses, I think, is that, first of all, somebody has to bake those prices in. And if you get quicker at knowing what's the good information, what's bad information, then you can kind of get ahead of the crowd. Because if somebody has to bake these prices in, and then there's also the, the second called the, the, the Grossman-Stiglitz paradox after Sandy Grossman and Joe Stiglitz, who wrote a seminal paper that, you know, theoretically, again, holds up well that, you know, somebody has to be compensated for making markets efficient or semi-efficient, whatever term you use. Uh, and if markets were perfectly efficient, then nobody would make money doing this. And, you, uh, and that means somebody has to be compensated for making them efficient, for baking these better prices in all the time, whether up or down five or 10%. Um, and that is again true. I think some of it is just inertia, like hope springs eternal. So economists always like having very clean mental models that, you know, we all know have their weaknesses in the real world. And for me, 
the Sanford, the, the, the Grossman Stiglitz paradox is really interesting. And I'm planning to write some more about that recently because there's been some interesting research around it. Um, but the, the simple explanation is just that hope springs eternal. There will always be somebody who either manages money actively because they think they're smarter than the rest or will allocate the active strategies because they, they need to get more than just the beta return. I mean, today right. is a classic case. Active funds, despite having essentially sucked for a decade, or frankly, for a, hundred, a right, century, right, right. are having a bit of a renaissance. The inflows into active funds were the greatest in 2021 there have been for many years. No kidding. And that's not because active funds are getting better. Is purely the fact that stock markets around the world are so expensive now and fixed income markets are so, so yields are so low that if you have a 7% return target, it's hard to get there with mainstream stocks and bonds. So you need somebody who can plausibly give you, let's say, the beat of 3 or 4% plus some alpha. Right. Um, so it's just behavioral glitches. And I think you know, being too dogmatic about whether you're sort of a, a farmish or a Schiller Schillerite, you know, it goes you down the wrong route. Right. Fundamentally, yeah, right. the George Bock quote is that all models are wrong, but some are useful. And I right. think all models can be useful in different environments. Right. And and that's you're you're getting into Grossman Stiglitz, which is perfect because that's going to be the, my last thread of questions. But first, a a a quick story again. I found by accident uh, from John Cleese of Monty Python fame. He is uh, he was going around doing a one man show called Why There Is No Hope. And it grew out of a question he asked his therapist, who was re renowned 15 years ago. He asked him, how many in your profession really know what they're doing? And his therapist said, about 10%. And this blew Cleese's mind. And so he started, he's famous. He has connections and knows other successful, famous people in various professions. And so he asked these superior performers in these different professions the same question. And the answers all range from 5 to 20% with a central tendency between 10 and 15%. So I laughed and said, um, maybe this is just completely normal and not unique at all to a uh, an industry that it would be only 10% of active managers that really not in any given year, I don't like that statistic, but over a 10 year period can can add value. And, and you have a, in the um, Purdy Shotgun chapter, you have a line, you know, what to make of all this, which is where, where we're at now. The Economist a couple of years ago, I had an article where they were quoting Morningstar. And I do apologize for asking you to comment about the way someone else gathered statistics. But the, the opening paragraph was how um, what they called computers were already managing half the money out there. The, uh, your quants, you know, Cliff Asnes and AQR, uh, algorithms, they created a second category, maybe Simons at Renaissance, and then the index funds the, together were already... Uh, half of the market. And so my, my thinking in getting into this last leg of what is the impact of all this is index funds don't, uh, index funds don't need to get to 90% to remove all humans. You're maybe you're talking about, you know, 40% and, and you, uh, um, does that, do those numbers resonate with you at all? And, and by the way, I, I, I wrote a joke, not to say that quants aren't humans, you know, but they are, <laughs> but uh, where, where are we on in this, in this march towards, you know, 90% uh, non-fundamental, if you will. Yeah. No, I think it's uh, it's um, it's actually a really important question that actually sometimes I wrestle with even in my day job at the Financial Times because I sometimes feel, you know, like I said, 
we all deal with narratives in shorthand because sometimes they just you need to do that. But in practice, the world is a lot more complex. The numbers I see around what is passive or index or quantitative uh, or, or discretionary or fundamental, they're all over the map. Quite a lot of people, quite straight up, uh, get confused with the difference between the stock market and the basically assets under management of the mainstream investment universe. Okay. So in the United States, around half of the equity assets under management of funds registered with the Investment Company Institute are passive. Uh, now that is even so that that's of half, but that is only a minority of the entire cap market cap on the entire US stock market, let alone the global stock market, because there are both pension funds, sovereign wealth funds that own equities directly, right. uh, households, right. Jeff Bezos, like there are lots of wealthy individuals that own lots of stock in their own companies. And, you know, hedge funds are quite often not included in that either. Also, secondly, even on the passive side of the ledger, there's a big difference between, let's say, a S&P 500 index fund, or even a Vanguard total stock market fund, or a factor fund sold by BlackRock, or let's say uh, a triple levered ETF or something like that. So these are all grouped in under passive, but they're clearly not. Like some of these are just trading tools, like leverage ETPs are trading tools, even though they're classified as a passive fund. Right. And in the same way that you are making an active choice in what index you use, how you do it. So it, the passive side isn't quite as passive people think. Similarly, on the active side, look, the dirty secret of the investment industry is that a lot of the active money is actually hugging an index as well and is right. charging active fees for it. Also, quite a lot of those people are using computers and algorithmic models themselves. Right. So how much of that is active? Like, is a renaissance an active fund manager or is it a systematic manager or how do you classify these things sometimes we don't even really know how much human discretion is involved um and when it comes to the trading data it's heavily skewed by the fact that this is an area of high frequency trading so yes the vast majority of trading is going to be entirely algorithmic now right but broadly speaking i see it as a, sort of a sliding scale of systematic where an etf let's say spider is just a really simple algorithm on one side of the scale. And then you have a Renaissance Technologies Medallion Fund, which is, again, systematic, but just wildly different complexity and costs if you were allowed to access it. And money is definitely moving towards that, basically, that systematic, or the basically the sliding scale of discretion to systematic and complexity, simple to complex. And an ETF is systematic and simple. Medallion is systematic and complex. Most fund managers are probably kind of moving in the scale from discretionary to, you know, essentially more systematic. Because if you went into any sort of certainly institutional investor meeting or even an ordinary investor said, yeah, we don't use computers. We think all this data science like Excel, anything beyond Excel is just mumbo jumbo. Right. I mean, you'd get laughed out. Nobody would give you money then, Right. right. And people are getting more like sophisticated in both like how they implement trades and the execution, all these things. So I think I use active passive imprecisely far too often, even in my writing, and sometimes even in the book. Uh, towards the end, I try to kind of unpick it a little bit and explain that these terms are very imprecise shorthands that work quite a lot. But in practice, especially when we talk about the impact, uh, falls through. And that's why I tend to think that 
people get very excited about is it 40% passive of the entire stock market, 60%, 80%? I don't know. Yeah. But I think actually, on average, the market efficiency is in increasing because passive puts more pressure on, frankly, dumb money or lazy money, like the index hugging. So the mediocre people are, generally speaking, there will be brilliant people forced out, like the next Ben Graham forced out early, and some really stupid people that manage to just luck in and have a sustaining career that way. But broadly speaking, on average, you'd expect the more mediocre people to kind of get forced, squeezed out. So the market efficiency will get better and better and better. Right. Is there a tipping point where that might change? Maybe, but I don't think we'll ever hit it because okay. you think of how many markets there are in the world, like for houses, for batteries on Amazon. Do we really need hundreds of millions of participants to make an active market? No. no, we probably have a pretty efficient market with only a few hundred participants or a few thousand participants. Right. Do we need intraday price discovery? How, like, what's the societal value of that? I'm not really convinced it's as big as some people in the finance industry think. Yeah. So I, I'm on that point. I'm, there are many things around passive that I am concerned about, but the market efficiency issue is not one of them. And and <clears throat> I love that is that that one paragraph talking about the gray area between active and passive. It's I basically built a, a consulting business around it. And I I've concluded that in some ways the institutional investment industry can be its own worst enemy because it builds these silos and this vernacular and you have yeah. consultants and style boxes and it sucks any creativity and thought out of how you might actually um, add value. You know, if you don't fit into a style box, you know, good, good luck uh, raising money. I couldn't agree more. And this isn't something I went into depth in, in the book, but it's something that I'm thinking more about my job at the FT because there's been some signs of some more flexible thinking. Uh, but yes, I think a lot of investors do themselves a disservice by both uh, chasing performance, but also being far too, um, I mean, they would say disciplined, but I'd say rigid in how right. they fit different portfolio managers or strategies into their box where right. I remember talking to a guy who ran uh, T Rose small cap strategy, Henry Ellenbogen. And he was complaining that, you know, he was a pioneer of, of using a public mutual fund money to invest in private companies like Twitter and Warby Parker and DoorDash before they went, uh, went public. And, you know, he was complaining that like, because of like how strict the fund rules are for 40 X, even if there was more value in private markets than public markets, he, there was a cap on how much he could do. 100%. Uh, and, and because there's an illiquidity issue there, yep. of course, and which is natural. Again, I understand that. The same way that sometimes he wanted to hold the company because he still thought it was a high growth, great company that just happened to migrated from the Russell 2000 to the S&P 500. Right. And he could hold some off benchmark stuff, but not too much. Right. But here's a guy who's clearly a great investor that I think was delivering worse outcomes than he could have if his hands were freed a little bit more. So he left Hero to set up his own firm uh, called Durable. And it's a really interesting kind of more hybrid model. And I think, and I hope we'll see more of this, but there's so much inertia, as you know, right? People yep. like their boxes yep. and it's going to be slow to change. Yeah. And you, you open the door. So I'm going to, I'm going to grab it here as time is winding down. Um, a lot of hand wringing over price uh, realization. You're not worried about that. Governance, we, they're, you think they're doing a, a pretty good job 
at the at the big three. Larry Fink is is no wallflower. He, I don't know the characters at the other t- uh, two firms if there's a dominant personality, but they they're creating uh, entities to try to manage that process. But you just alluded to there are things that you worry about as we make this march towards um, uh, dominant passive investing um, management. W- what are those things? Well, so yeah, I think some of the criticism around passive funds being passive owners, encouraging corporate sloth is, is, is facile, frankly. I, mostly because I just don't think there was ever a golden era of, of corporate governance. Right. I mean, frankly, think of the era of, of conglomerates where CEOs would pay themselves insane amounts and have private fleets of private jets and sports team sponsorships and box teats and stuff like that. Was that really a golden era of corporate governance? This right. was the pre-passive era, right? Right. So I just I think that's just hogwash from an active management industry that is desperate for talking points in their existential battle against the rising tide of passive. That said, I think there are some trends that are worrisome. First of all, it's just the economics of indexing mean that the big will become bigger. And already BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard are huge, but especially Vanguard and BlackRock are just growing so much quicker. So I I think now at the end of 2021, that's around $18 trillion in assets under management, just those two firms. And they're just growing a lot quicker. I mean, BlackRock and Vanguard's passive funds probably took in over a billion dollars a day last year. Oh, my God. Every working day. That's unbelievable. And it's, it's just it's not really slowing down. I don't think it will because of both, you know, the numbers, the data is pretty grim for active, but also the cost issue. Uh, but that means the big will become even bigger. And so that's a market concentration issue that I think, you know, not in a kind of a crowded trade kind of thing, but it pulls a lot of power in the hands of a smaller group of asset managers. They include some active funds like a capital group or T-Row or especially Fidelity are huge as well. Right. I mean, Fidelity is bigger than State Street and growing more quickly. Uh, but also the parallel trend that we expect asset managers to play a far more proactive role in a lot of fairly major public policy areas. So in the U.S., for example, I, I used to, there was a period after the Parkland shootings, there was like a you know a campaign to divest against like Vanguard and State, BlackRock and State Street because they're the biggest owner of all the gun stocks because they're the biggest owner of every stock basically. Um, but you know climate change, uh, corporate governance on the board seats and diversity, and these are all areas that you know frankly I care a lot about. I am Norwegian, right? So right. you know I don't like guns and I think boards should not be. 100% all middle-class white dudes. Right. But, and I think there are good financial reasons why some of these things need to be addressed, but the parallel push of getting asset managers to take a far more aggressive stance uh, on a wide range of issues at the same time as the passive funds are getting bigger and bigger and more and more powerful. I think that is potentially problematic. Okay. Because fundamentally, look, I think many of these issues are best, or not just best, but only should sit with elected representatives of the people in a democratic society. Right. We should not be privatizing public policy issues. Right. Say in Norway, tobacco. In Norway, there's always been talk of that should the sovereign wealth fund sell out to tobacco companies because tobacco is terrible and all that jazz. Well, tobacco is legal in Norway. Right. 
like how can we force this fund to sell out of something that is fundamentally a legal goods in Norway? Right. So I, I think this is going to be an issue and I can't shake off this sort of concern, this kind of gnawing worry that we are kind of tiptoeing into a world where a BlackRock state suit in Vanguard, maybe a couple of handful of other active managers, essentially control more than half the vote of virtually every major public company in the world. Yeah, I don't think that is a healthy setup. Really. Okay. Um, last question before we wind it down. Your global correspondent at Financial Times, you're very focused on certain niches like technology and disruption. What's the next market to be disrupted that you're following? Is it and we didn't talk about bond ETFs, but you've talked about that elsewhere. And I will tag those interviews in comments when I post this. But what what are you looking at next for um, disruption in the investment universe? Well, I think um, I mean there's lots of excitement about direct indexing, some more custom indices. So yep. you can sort of use an SP 500 fund, but like tweak it a little bit. I think that's going to be a really fast growing area, but I think it, it will never really sort of take on the plain vanilla indexing world because most people don't want to fiddle around with their allocations on 500 stocks, or let alone there's several thousand in, in a global equity fund. It, it's a fund. niche. It'll be a niche. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it might be a trillion dollar niche, but <laughs> right. that's still a niche in the global. Right. Sort of context. Uh, I think passive fixed income is definitely going to grow, whether it's an ETF or other format. But you know the numbers are not as grim for active fixed income managers. But the long run uh, data is not great. And also, I think there's a dawning realization that has been in the active world for a long time is that a lot of stuff that we thought was alpha was actually some sort of beta in drag mm. by the market return. And that if you just bought small caps or cheap companies for the past century, you would have done well. And before we used to think, oh, wow, this guy's a great fund manager. Right. But actually, lo and behold, actually, they just had a tilt towards small caps and they tended to do better for various reasons that people disagree on. Right. Uh, I think in fixed income, there's been some really interesting research in recent years showing that actually overwhelmingly it seems active managers have systematically outperformed their indices the ones i have by just having a systematic tilt towards credit mm. and that has been something that works like basically junk bonds that has worked really well in an era of 40 years of falling interest rates and central banks acting very aggressively to forestall any major economic calamities is it going to work as well in the next 40 years i i, I don't right. think so probably right so i think fixed income is going to be in the next arc I'm very skeptical of, of crypto. There might be something there that makes me look like an idiot there that kind of disrupts everything. But I struggle to see a real use case beyond the hot air and blathering. Um, I think banking and trading, a lot of the ecosystem around it and how we bank and how we trade and save is going to migrate onto smartphones. I mean, we think it already has, but I think we're probably early days of okay. this era. Uh, that like how much banking, I can just see the difference between Norway and the US. I'd literally never seen a check my entire life growing up in Norway until I moved to the US. Yeah. Where banking is still pretty archaic, not by sort of science fiction standards, but by just little Norway. Right. Uh, so I think there's going to be a lot of interesting stuff that happens around that in the entire financial services ecosystem that's going to be profoundly disruptive to people that don't pivot well uh, to deal with this, that essentially still remain analog in a digital financial era. Yeah. 
Well, I, I follow you on uh, Twitter and LinkedIn. I just started subscribing to the Financial Times so I can get full articles quicker. I recommend everyone do that. Um, I will tag, as I said, the other interviews that I've seen of yours and benefited from. And um, I, I listened to them and threw out all my questions and tried to come up with something different and original while still talking about the book. I hope this went okay for you. I can't thank you enough for doing it. What, what else do you have coming up where other people can hear you talk or uh, besides seeing your articles, like the great one on Ken Griffin that just came out in the Financial Times, what, el what else do you have coming up? Hmm. Um, I've got a big magazine piece on the history of the bond market that I'm really excited about because, yeah, I do love a bit of history, but I think uh, people don't appreciate how vast the fixed income markets are today. We still always think of banks as the center of the, the central locus of a capitalist society. But in reality, actually, for the first time in history, in human history, two or three years ago, bonds became a bigger source of credit than banks in the world. Wow. So in the US has been far advanced of this trend as well. Uh, banks, uh, you know, and you know, some of the lending in the US is mostly capital markets, but this is now a revolution that's spreading. I think that has lots of profound implications for how the financial system operates, how central banks operate. It's like what, the reason why central banks buy bonds now rather than just lifting and, and raising or lowering interest rates is because if they want to affect the price of credit, they have to get involved in the bond market Got because it. that matters more now than banks. Um, but apart from that, I mean, the best thing about my job, but also finance and markets is that it keeps changing. Right. Like there's always some new fascinating thing that I just, I get, I go down a very deep rabbit hole of. So uh, you know, I say this piece, but for example, I've been working on this magazine piece for over a year now. And there's always something more timely and more fascinating that jumps ahead of it in the queue. Right. Um, so yeah, watch this space. We appreciate your fascination with this industry and all the changes and, and sharing what you learn with us. This has been great. And I can't thank you enough, Robin Wigglesworth, for spending now more than an hour with me. And uh, I hope to talk to you again soon, sir. No, no, thanks, John. Thanks for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. It's nice to really get stuck into some of the, some of the nerdy areas of this as well. My second son just arrived in Madrid on Saturday, hope uh, to spend the semester there. So I, I, not that he's going to call me very often. Well, you almost hope he won't, right? Because I mean, if he calls you quite often, that probably means that he's not having that much fun. You almost never want him to call you ever. There are worse places to be than Madrid, I think. <laughs>